0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is I Will Make You a Millionaire. Another episode helping someone reach their goal of making millions. What's the interest in Nigeria? I'm curious. Uh,
1: Not very good where he was, but the… Content was unbelievable. His attitude towards chess and how he was actually born in the slums himself, and chess brought him out of poverty and gave him opportunities he never would have had any other way. How did it bring him out of poverty? He started to play chess and then was able to get schooling because of being good at chess. And that's what is happening with the nonprofit. Is like these kids will. go to chess tournaments and play against the private school kids and then beat them and then get scholarships for them and their family to actually attend schools in Nigeria because of it kids that were not going to school at all kids that were just basically on the streets during the day because they couldn't afford to be in school so they just kind of roamed the streets how
0: did you find them to have him on your podcast
1: Brian Keating oh really he sent a video I think he
0: tagged you, too, Joe. Yeah, he Oh, tagged, yeah, yeah.
1: He tagged the both of us, and I looked the guy's story up, and I go, this is unbelievable. And it's about chess? I'm like, this is a win-win. <laughs> That's cool. And then I'm like, how do I get better at chess? I'm like, I want to be an expert or master. And he said... He actually brought up this story about a guy on lead chess who's played the most games he's seen out of everyone. Over 100,000 games. And the guy's still a 1,200-rated player. He said... What that proves to me is playing more chess doesn't actually make you better at chess. Well, playing blitz chess doesn't make you better at chess. Yes.
0: If you play long games, you're not playing just one game. Your brain is playing like 30 games because you're looking down so many variations and possibilities. You really learn all the potential of a position as opposed to blitz chess, which is just intuition.
1: So I am curious about connecting that to business because to me, it's being able to see the future or kind of strategizing all the different routes of conversation or a business meeting or a negotiation or the way your business can go like can we connect that somehow to entrepreneurialship?
0: yeah in a couple of different ways one is pretty much no matter what you do the same outcome will happen like most moves in most positions but there are times when there are critical moments where you really need to think and make an important decision and really need to think several steps ahead. Like if I do this, what will my employees think? What will my investors think? How will the customers react? If I redesign this website, is this too big a decision right now? Like what does theory say about this? What does, uh, my intuition say, well, what can I calculate, uh, specifically? So I think, I think, and as opposed to just blitz, just doing everything off the of seat of your pants and intuitive, that's great if you have a lot of experience and are already good and have experience at slow thinking. But you know this is like the difference between what Kahneman calls system one thinking and system two thinking. System one's filled with cognitive biases because it's just your gut intuition talking, which is fine most of the time. But system two is when those moments where you really need to think more deeply. Just making gut decisions or, or even giving gut advice to people you don't really know their situation. Their situation is a lot deeper than you would know just if they're asking you for advice. yeah, You know what I mean? Like if you're in a business and you're asking me for advice, I either have to have enormous experience or I have to deeply know what is going on in your specific situation. Because with slow chess, for instance, the game, the position has much more depth than what it would seem to a, a blitz player. Like... There's ever there's so many possibilities to analyze. And you're looking for slight, you know, slightly moves that will make me just slightly better, which is not so much in blitz chess, but in slow chess. And so you need that slow chess experience. So I kind of said a lot of things, but if I were to summarize them, one is you need experience in slow business, like really thinking out decisions to have to be able to make have the skill level to make fast decisions. Two, You have to identify what the critical moments are and know that's the moments to think deeply. Don't think deeply over every decision, but know when the critical moments are so you can think deeply about your business situation. Three, your business has a lot more depth and possibility than you can possibly imagine at every level of decision-making. That's where I would unpack that.
1: So how do you know those critical moments, though, if you don't have the experience and a honed intuition? How do you know that, oh, this is the moment I need to slow down and phone a friend and Get more advice versus procrastinating. And I, I mean, I feel like it's easy to procrastinate and hesitate and not make any decisions because you're doing so much research. And then it's really easy just to follow your gut on everything and then just make decisions quick. Like, how do you find the balance between them?
0: Well, I think so- sometimes they present themselves to you like a, a major customer quits or a major employee quits or an investor wants to pull out or you can't raise money. So sometimes they present themselves to you, but other times, you kind of have to always look around what are the range of possibilities here like oh should i introduce a new feature to my product or should i approach consumers as opposed to companies at any given moment you have the possibility of those but sometimes when you're thinking about it you know what i just ran into a guy at a party who is a decision maker for coca cola company maybe it's time i approach enterprises so like a, like again circumstances could change enough that you could say oh I have an idea. I'm I'm creative, and this idea might actually work now. As opposed to constantly having ideas and trying them, and mostly spinning on your your wheels. Sometimes you have ideas, candidate moves in chess, where if you look just a slightly bit deeply, you say, "Oh, there actually is something here." You know, my father who was a chess player. Always used to say to me, "The first move I always looked at was how can how many ways can I sacrifice my queen?" That's always the first move I would look at, and most of the time, in one second, you could say, "Well, clearly." That loses in every single case. But sometimes you would not have looked at it and you look at it and you're like, hmm, that actually look does look interesting. I never would have thought that if I hadn't specifically looked at it. So you should always look at the crazy things or all your possibilities. And usually you could discount them in a second. But if you look like one half move deeper or one you know, scenario deeper in business, you might say, you know what? It might be interesting. I sell gum, but it might be interesting to package the gum with a baseball card. <laughs> <laughs> and because people are suddenly really interested in baseball, 6 years ago maybe it wasn't interesting to do that, but now it's interesting to do that. And that's tops baseball cards, you know, had that way or or with with the Disney well, with the Walt Disney company, you know, Walt Disney, it was a critical moment because He had put out such beautiful movies like Snow White and the Seven Doors, Sleeping Beauty. These are the most beautiful movies still in history. But the company was not making a profit. And he was like, why the heck I need to make money? I need to make a profit or else I'm going to go out of business. That's a critical moment. And so the solution, which is a little more... You have to be creative in those critical moments. And that's why chess is such a beautiful game because it could be both technical, but also wildly creative. The solution that worked for Walt Disney was... Make a wristwatch with Mickey Mouse on it. And Walt Disney, the next year, 1937, the Disney company became the largest watchmaker in the world. They sold a million watches, they hit a profit for the first time. Now, if he had done that three years earlier, maybe it wouldn't have worked because maybe Mickey Mouse wasn't a strong enough brand. But right then, you know, the critical moments were Mickey Mouse was a strong enough brand, watches were popular, and they were going to go out of business. Otherwise, no matter how beautiful their product was. So that was a critical moment. Whereas if you're making a lot of money, I mean, the reason why a lot of big businesses aren't very innovative is because they don't have critical moments. They've buffered their risks so much, which is a good thing. If you're a big company, you know, the bigger you are, the harder they fall. So they've buffered their risks so much, but they no longer have critical moments except like when a CEO dies or, or there's a scandal or whatever, like Johnson & Johnson had a critical moment when someone was putting poison in Tylenol. But I'll give you an example. Larry Page was trying to figure out his PhD thesis. So he was having a critical moment. What should, he has to really think, he's a smart guy, what should my PhD thesis be? And the topic he came up with ended up being Google. Another person at the same time was having a critical moment, but he worked for a big company. And so he came up with the exact same idea as Google, but he pitched it to his superiors at the Dow Jones company, which owned Wall Street Journal, they said, no, they don't need to do this. And so he, Robin Lee, who worked for Dow Jones, moved to China and started Baidu, basically the Google of China. And that, so he dealt with his critical moment by leaving his company and, and leaving the country and doing his idea there. Whereas Dow Jones, there was never, they, for them, it wasn't a critical moment so there was no reason for them to do it. And so that's interesting to see why small business, looking at it in in, in the guise of a chess analogy, you could see why big companies do not innovate. Small companies are more likely to innovate because small companies have more critical moments. And in chess, if a grandmaster is playing a beginner, he's not going to sacrifice his queen for no reason. He might lose. The grandmaster is going to have no critical moments in a game of chess against a beginner or against most people so they they'll play just normal moves for the whole game and then win they don't need to have and a they're so moment.
1: hard to beat for me the beginner because they're not making any weaknesses they're just playing slow fair safe developed chess i mean yeah just... and that,
0: that, particularly in blitz chess that's why they're so good at speeches they've seen many more positions than you they have the intuition and the experience they're not going to have a critical moment where they have to think against you or most cases me that's why they play so fast and you have you play slow because you have to think about you are, you're having lots of critical moments against them because they're challenging you. They know how to challenge and ask questions more than you. So in business, in that sense, having a bigger repertoire of like when I'm selling, let's say I'm selling a corporate customer and I'm in the room and I know they're meeting with other people, I need to have a bigger repertoire of selling techniques. So I need to not only um, establish an emotional connection with the customer, I need to understand the psychology of what I'm doing better than my competitors who might even be better than me at the service I'm offering.
1: This is really helpful for right now, because what I'm basically doing right now with the Amazon business is following up on these leads from the natural health conference and selling my services. And, and so this is a perfect timing for that. Yeah. And like, what
0: I like about your, your, we talked a little about your sales techniques uh, the last time. What, What I liked was, a, you're willing to say no to a customer if they don't fit the niche that you want or they don't have a product that you believe in. And you're willing to recommend other you're 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 willing to recommend your competitors to them. Um, and you're a very congenial person and 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 so on. So when you recommend someone else, a, they probably want to work with you even more. But b, even if you they end up working with the person you recommend or someone else, it's a guarantee to me that at some point in the future, they will contact you. And want to meet with you again whether it's on another project or another business or they want to ask your advice on their current business that's the google technique where you refer somebody don't go to my website go to this website if you want to learn about motorcycles here's 10 websites for you it's the google technique and that they always go back to google when they want to learn something new
1: yeah it worked i just got an email uh, like a week ago from someone i spoke to early this year about their amazon business and I basically, what they weren't a good fit. And they said, hey, we're on Amazon now. Here's our page. Just wanted to let you know. And they're like, thanks so much for the advice you gave. <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, that's great. They kept in touch. So do you, I, I am curious, do you think that it's worth fabricating critical moments if you aren't, if you don't have one, basically, it's kind of like the, the hackathons that businesses do, where they bring all their people in, and then they try to just break something and see if they can make it better and rebuild it from that. Like,
0: That's a great question. And there's been a lot of, in the history of business, let's say in the past 100 years, there's been a lot of thinking about this because it's clear smaller companies innovate and bureaucratic companies don't. So so let's just look at a couple of examples. We look at the Walt Disney example where he was still small and he was having a critical, he didn't need to fabricate the critical moment. But another example might be Henry Ford. So Henry Ford twice failed as an automobile manufacturer. The second time was close, but he didn't really believe in the method. The investors wanted to impose their own methods on the manufacturing. He could have gone down that route and maybe he would have been successful, but he, it's almost like he had to manufacture a critical moment. He quit the Henry Ford Automobile Company, which is what it was called, and he started Ford Motor Company. But he manufactured a critical moment. He was starting from scratch. And now this was his third attempt. Nobody was investing in him. They thought he was crazy and hard to work with. And that's how he invented the assembly line. That was his critical moment. And then let's speed forward to Apple computer, Steve Jobs. So when he was making the first Macintosh, he set up a completely different office space in a different building. And he handpicked a, a small group of people to recreate that like in a garage kind of effect. And, and look, the Apple two plus, the Lisa, these were fine computers, but the Macintosh was really a breakthrough. Uh, and so he would, that was how he was able to uh, manufacture a critical moment. But I think in general, it's hard for a large company. Like look at Google, the old, it's 99% of its historical revenues in the past 20 years have come from one thing, which is, you know, search engine, you know, buying keywords on the search engine. So all their other products, not really done anything. Um, it would be interesting to see how Jeff Bezos has manufactured critical moments. And I think for a small business, you don't need to try to do it just by definition. A small business is almost, it's like a beginning chess player. It's almost always in a critical moment. And,
1: and, yeah, and, you and know. It, it, it does feel like at any day it could just, go away. And at, at the point it's at like, Oh, it just get a couple phone calls from a couple of different clients and say, yeah, sorry, we're, we're not going to work with you anymore. And then the business is just gone. <laughs> right. And so that's
0: just in the very beginning, let's say you're still a small business, but you're five years in business, seven years, and you have competitors and it's an industry. Let's say you have 50 million in revenues a year. You know, you, you like, for instance, let's say like one of the businesses I've started and have been involved in is selling, uh, investment newsletters about, you know, and I have a bunch of writers and we write about different types of investing and different recommendations and we write about crypto options, value investing, and so on. Well, every now and then the investment newsletter business go, runs high, runs low, and we have to think, oh, we're not really making so much money. This is a critical moment. so you have to say, well, is this a time to develop a new newsletter? Or do we put more marketing efforts behind an older newsletter? Or do we shut some newsletters down and or merge them with others? So every now and then you have obvious critical moments and you have to decide what what to do and you have to really think you can't just do like the gut thinking might be okay let's just get out of this business or okay let's just cut all the employees and see if we can survive and then when things are or when the economy's back we'll we'll ramp up like those are kind of gut instinctive things but it might be the time to be more clever let's spin off this business maybe shut down this part of the business and maybe start a new business. Maybe something worked in the past and now we'll try it again in the future. So and then you have to think, well, who's the customer? And then you start thinking of the marketing and and how that will look. And so that's kind of a, a a legit critical moment that even a small business might have out of the beginning stage, you know, where you have to really think like who are the right people, who are the right customers, what's the right product, what's the world interested in? That's a critical moment. Because in chess, most of the time you're playing someone fairly equal to you in skill. That's how tournaments are set up. You know, you're playing along. And like, let's say you're, you're out of your memory now. So, okay, I, I've played all these moves before, but he just played a move I don't recognize. That's clearly a critical moment. Uh, maybe when the first time the queens are off the board and things have settled down, like an attack has settled down and now the position's converted. That's a critical moment. Or maybe you're attacking and you could see, oh my gosh, this is, does this work? Should I do rook takes pawn and give up my rook? And maybe I'll, if it doesn't work, I lose the game because I'm down a rook. But if I work, so I'm going to checkmate the king. But if I don't do it right now, it seems like I'll never be able to do it again. So that's a critical moment. But that requires a little bit of analysis first to determine if it's a critical moment. So there's all those different types of critical moments.
1: And you can't be playing three-minute chess because then you never have time to think any of that through anyway. So
0: No, you can't. You really want to avoid critical moments in three-minute chess, which is why someone like... This is what's so genius about the current world champion, Magnus Carlsen is that he plays as opposed to, let's say, Gary Kasparov, top player of all time, perhaps, along with Magnus Carlsen. Gary Kasparov has many critical moments because he plays, you know, crazy attacking, wild, creative chess. I'm not saying Magnus Carlson is not creative. It is very creative. But he, he basically gets very equal positions where he knows what to do because of his vast memory and his vast experience and his vast you know, skill and, and talent. So very tiny, he, he might even be a little down. The computer often looks at his position and say, Oh, this guy's, whoever this guy is, is a little bit down. He's a little bit losing, but Magnus Carlson knows how to play it. And he just knows how to grind it out and get, Oh, now he went from slightly down to slightly better. Now he went slightly more better now, slightly more better. That's why he's so good at blitz chess. Cause he's knows how to not have critical moments and still improve the game. He doesn't need to say, oh my gosh, if I don't solve this situation, this the game hinges on this. He kind of just knows instinctively how to play drawish equal positions and improve them slightly. And I'm kind of jealous of that style. Like I I would like to gravitate more towards that style. I, I think it's a very really, I think it's a good style to have because he kind of makes sure he doesn't lose before he starts trying to win. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he's trying not to have there be some backdoor loss that because he got a little bit too carried away with an attack that wasn't actually sound or he didn't have the time to see all the way through. And yeah, that's that's true. And I, I've heard people that play him in fast chess or tournament chess that it feels like he's just wrestling you to the ground slowly, like very like almost like a cobra that's tightening around you tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter until you literally can't go anywhere.
0: Yeah, he's one of those players where you would, where if you're an opponent of his, I would imagine I've never been an opponent of his. He's the type of player where you would think, I I can't even figure out where I went wrong. I can't, did I make a wrong move and suddenly I lost.
1: Yeah, you may not have a blunder at all. It may just be just, I mean, can you lose a game of chess without a blunder or a mistake? Uh, I mean,
0: ultimately there is some mistake, but it could be very, very tiny. That most people wouldn't recognize, but Magnus Carlson would recognize it. So you wouldn't recognize, even studying the game later, you wouldn't know that that move, your move eighth move, caused a problem on move forty. And when you made that eighth move, Magnus Carlson instantly knew that by move forty you were going to be dead. But even studying the game afterwards, you probably wouldn't figure. Even studying the game with a computer afterwards, you wouldn't be able to tell what was your critical mistake. And Magnus Carlson would right away say it was your eighth move. And you're like eighth move, but I didn't you didn't start beating me until move 40 and he's like but yeah but i moved my piece here my that piece there this piece here because of that eighth move and that's how i won
1: that's the beauty of chess right there that yeah. that is that's what makes it a game that i will never quit playing because you could spend your life trying to improve and still never get to that level i mean it's right. endless improvement and this is like this is like business too so
0: chess and business are a battle of ideas You have to have ideas that are better than your business competitors, or you have to have ideas better than the industry, or you have to have ideas better than um, your uh, opponents in chess. Like when I, let's say I made, let's say I was playing someone like Magnus Carlsen and I made my eighth move and I had an idea like, oh, I'm going to just develop my piece. doesn't matter which square, I'm just going to develop it. But Magnus Carlsen might have said, oh, well, he developed it on king's side, ignoring the queen side. So that means this type of attack on the queen side might work. So I'll start moving my pieces around and see if he responds to defend, because he might not realize that the idea of his piece was to defend the queen side, not the king side in this type of position. So it's a really a battle of ideas and who is more
1: clever and creative with the ideas. That makes sense. And I am curious to, when you were doing your, your website agency, And you were designing websites and selling websites to people most of the people you were working with didn't understand why they needed one at the time right i'm gonna make a chess analogy
0: again it's almost like you have to pick your opening for the opponent am i going to play a wild attacking opening or should i play a more strategic opening and what moves are in that opening so when i sold my services during that time let's say 1995 1996 companies rarely had websites then uh, i would have to my opening would be, I'd have to express a vision, a very compelling vision, not only why they needed a website, but why they needed a website right now before their competitors developed a website. And what, what were the things they were going to do with this? They didn't even know is the website like, can I just put my marketing materials and that's a website they didn't understand. No, maybe all of your e-commerce is going to be on the web If you're a TV channel. Maybe all of television is going to be on the web. You need to start now to start uh, determining. So you need to present this vision. Then, you know, and this is in addition to other sales techniques, like establishing a connection and so on. So you need to present a vision of why this is important. Like for you, selling people your services on creating an Amazon seller store, it's a very real fact that people would are 70% more likely to buy something from Amazon, even if then using the company's, website, even if it's cheaper on the website, because they just, the trust factor is very important. Not that they don't trust your brand, but they trust, they know Amazon.
1: So when I went to the Natural Health Expo, I researched every single brand that was gonna be there in advance. And I said, this is gonna be easy. I'm gonna find the people that aren't on Amazon, go to their booths and tell them why they should be on Amazon and how they're missing out. There was only like five or six people out of 750 that weren't already on Amazon. So then I did more research and I realized, okay, they're on Amazon but they're not doing a great job on Amazon. They're missed, They're not putting videos, they're not, they don't have great graphics, they're not telling a good story, They are they don't have their products organized really well. So they were missing the boat in that fashion on how much effort they were putting forth, not just being there in general.
0: Right, so it's interesting there. So you saw something they needed, but A, they might not realize they needed it. B, they might not wanna to be told that they're not doing things great. You have to be able to assess that. It could be yeah. that the deci- the decision maker made the seller story. He doesn't want to be embarrassed by you saying, "Hey, you guys do a sucky job." Like you know, uh, C. They might not have the, the money or the resources to do it. Uh, D. They might not realize how important it is. Uh, and and on and on. So at that point, you have a vision, but there's a disconnect. And you have and then this is where sales technique comes in. You have to figure out like how to get that foot in the door. Which you know you I, I when we Discussed last time, you would go up to people and say, "Oh, oh, you're this product. I love this product. You're Outstanding Foods, the vegan chip company. Oh my God, I eat your chips every day." And uh, 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 you know, our friend Bill Glazer, and uh, you know, you you have your own personal way of, of getting the foot in the door. And then, like, look, listen, I do this. I'm not trying to sell you. My technique always is, I'm not trying to sell you. You can go in any which way. I'm happy to give advice for free. But if you just do this one thing you'll probably sell a lot more like oh i feel like your page is just long enough that i've got to scroll to hit the shop now button i don't even see the shop now button unless i scroll a little bit just make the shop now button at the top of it and you'll blah blah blah. so so you get something for free and you're like you know that's they could say you know you're you're right you're kind of right about that that's cool any other ideas look i'm i'm checking on everybody right now but i love your product i love your site. I love what you guys stand for. I would really, let's just follow up. What's your email address? I'll give you my email address. I will follow up with you with more ideas. And then probably if I were you, I would just give like 10 ideas, like all the ideas for free, because still they need somebody to implement it and maintain it. Yeah. If you say, if you say, look, uh, this is what I do for a living. So I I have ideas, but I'd love to meet you. They're like, oh, well, well, that guy was interesting, but no more. (laughs) But that could just be me, like I'm insecure about that. So I always give and give and give, but it works for me. That has worked for me historically is to give as much as possible for free because still they want two things. They don't know how to implement it. They don't know how to maintain it. And even if they know those two things, they want someone smart and giving to be their consigliere on this stuff.
1: Yeah, that's great. Yep, I love that. So that's gonna be my follow-up method for these warm leads that I have. I know we briefly talked about it before. It's sort of that timidness of putting myself out there and, and saying, hey, here's what you need to do.
0: This is why it was so important for me to develop that idea muscle where I, I write down in my waiter's pad, you know, here's, here's my waiter's pad, uh, showing it, uh, 10 ideas a day. And I don't know what this was an idea list for, but it looks like ideas for selling, actually. I, I'm writing discounts, rewards, referrals, but I started writing down 10 ideas a day. And then one use of them was to pitch ideas to people who I wanted to interact with. And I would say, I'm giving this for free. And invariably about 10 to 20% would respond. And, you know, more and more as I did this more and got better at it, you know, the real purpose of writing the 10 ideas a day is to build that creativity muscle, or sometimes I call it the idea muscle or the possibility muscle, but it's a fantastic selling technique. Because if I'm coming up with ideas so much, it doesn't cost me anything to share one list out of 365 with someone else. I don't care if they steal my idea. But invariably, some of them get back in touch and opportunities, amazing opportunities happen. But James, what I wanted to talk to you about this week also is let's go into business together. Let's start
1: PodPub. 100%.
0: I haven't talked to, you know, Brian and I have spoken to about this on our podcast and you and I have spoken about it. And I, I remember thinking like, Oh, is it's fine. But is James going to compete? And you even, <laughs> and you suggested thinking I could see your idea of muscles where you? you're like, let's just do all do it together. And, and I know you've been on Brian's podcast. I haven't listened to that yet, but I'm sure Brian would agree. Let's, I haven't talked to Brian. So I'm speaking for him without talking to him, but let's just do it like third, 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 start, this
1: business 100% and what's great is I already have the foundations for the majority of the publishing and the launching of a book already all figured out and written out from books I've already launched
0: pitch to me the idea because you're pitching the listeners what's the idea
1: well so if if you've got a podcast and you've interviewed 10 people or 100 people or a thousand people you've already got a treasure trove of fantastic interviews that just need to be repackaged and in a different medium because not everyone's going to listen to your hour, hour and a half or 45 minute long podcast. But when you have just a a bite-sized book on a specific topic, let's just say it's the resistance of growing your business with James Altucher. And it takes all the interviews that you've done with business leaders and entrepreneurs and then gets one nugget of information from each of them. It's just so easy to follow
0: I would even give a a even simpler example. I've interviewed various categories of people. One category, if you could categorize this as a category, is I've interviewed a lot of billionaires. I took all the interviews with billionaires, edited them heavily, wrote big intros and outros for them, what I learned and what the experience was, and, and wrote an intro to the whole thing, like what are the common threads of billionaires? And then I had a book, Think Like a Billionaire, which I published on Scribd. Uh, and it was one of their first Scribd originals. It was, I guess, a quote-unquote bestseller on their platform. Brian Keating has interviewed a bunch of Nobel Prize winners. I wrote the forward to his book, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner. He did the exact, he based his approach, he got the idea from looking at Think Like a Billionaire. And of course, the classic example, the first example I think I've seen of this is Tim Ferriss' Tools of Titans. He took a bunch of iconic figures that he admired. I was one of them and made a chapter for each one of them took an edited transcript of the interview, but he wrote his commentary all throughout. And it's it's a book that I regularly go back to. It was a major bestseller. It was what, maybe his best bestseller, even more than The 4-Hour Work Week, for all
1: I know. And Howard Stern's book was like that too. It was yeah. not podcast interviews. It was interview interviews.
0: Yeah. His book, I think, was about interviewing. And, and it wasn't about any one category. Whereas Brian Keating's was about how to be a Nobel Prize winner. Or like, for instance, I've interviewed a lot of comedians. Like, I've had a thousand interviews, so I could make think like a billionaire, think like a stand-up comedian, think like a, a Hall of Fame athlete, think like a movie star. Like, I have so many categories. I could probably have twenty books. I would buy every one of those. <laughs> I would too. Like, if Tim Ferriss did it, I would. I would. I would certainly do it. And if Brian Keating did it, or or Joe Rogan, or uh, Eric Weinstein, or any of these any of these people who do these. Uh, interview podcast Mark Marin
1: So I listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast, I listen to your podcast, I listen to Brian Keating's podcast. What's the benefit to me the listener of the show to now go buy the book if I've already heard a lot of the episodes?
0: Well, okay, there's a that's a great question. So, first off, the end user, so this is an interesting question because if we're setting up this company where we help podcasters publish books of their material, our customer, of course, is the podcaster but the end user of the product is the fan of either the topic or Tim Ferriss or or whoever. So the benefit to them is James in his interview with Mark Cuban had only asked questions. He only had so much time to talk to Mark Cuban. What else does he have to say? What insights, how did this interview with Mark Cuban help him in his life? What was the background of him? Does he know Mark Cuban? Did he, you know, how did he get him on the podcast? Was there anything he left out? was there anything Mark Cuban said that changed the way James approaches business? What happened after the interview? Did James's life change because of something Ken Langone said, you know, and also just how does James learn things? Does he remember everything from these interviews or what's the, why did he do this? Why does he have to do this? Like in tools of the Titans, Tim Ferriss explained that he kind of forgot a lot of his podcasts. he had to re-listen to them. He was going through a hard time in his life and he wanted to re-listen to a lot of these podcasts that inspired him. And that led to tools of the Titans. So, there's like more backstory, there's more insights. If you were a fan of Tim Ferriss, you want to see his greater insights in and around the topic. And maybe he has some gossipy things and stories to tell too about some of the people he interviewed and and like what happened and what they laughed about and what they cried about, whatever. And, you know, particularly with Brian Keating, who wrote the book, you know, Losing the Nobel Prize, it's interesting to see his own reflections on these great Nobel prize winners. Cause he is a student of the Nobel prize and close to winning it at any given point. So what is he, he might get enough information from this. He could win the Nobel prize. And I wanna go on that journey with him by reading the book, but also it's the spoken wheel approach. So I write about this and skip the line. You're not a podcaster or you're not a writer or you're not an interviewer. What you are is like, for instance, you know, Brian Keating, he has a podcast. Let's say about great intelligence, and that covers many people who have won the Nobel Prize. and And what does it take to be, you know, so intelligent you could you could change the world with your discoveries? And so that's the wheel. And one spoke is the podcast. Another spoke is he's a professor. Another spoke is books. And so it could be that people who never heard of you before, never listened to your podcast. Go, go in the bookstore, go on Amazon, and they see, think like a Nobel Prize winner. And they're like, oh, I'd like to think like a Nobel Prize winner. And they get Brian's book. And that's another spoke by which people become exposed to Brian's vision of the world, or Tim Ferriss' vision of the world, or my vision of the world. So for the podcaster, you're missing out. You're leaving money and audience on the table by not using as many spokes as possible. So yes, maybe live stream on Twitch. Some of your interviews maybe um put on a youtube channel for your podcast something i don't really do maybe make books maybe make audio books maybe uh make another podcast that's five minute summaries of each podcast who knows i'm just making it up but you 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 know or if you if you're the type of person who has a bitcoin podcast like it's all about bitcoin okay write a book about bitcoin do a podcast about bitcoin start a hedge fund for crypto, start a venture capital fund, funding crypto related companies, uh, and on and on. So we'll write articles for the big crypto websites about crypto, maybe start a paid newsletter about crypto, a free newsletter about crypto, which you sell ads on. So there's you always have to take a step back. What's the wheel and then what are the spokes? So for instance, you have some expertise in selling on Amazon, setting up an Amazon seller store. So you could set up a service business or you could set up a product business, like use this tool and it'll automatically set up your store on Amazon. Like use this template system I built. Or you could write a book, how to set up uh, an Amazon seller store. Or you could give a talk or a series of talks. Or you could go one step further out, how to set up an agency. Um, You know, that's another spoke. Is when Another way to generate ideas is to go macro instead of micro. Or uh, another thing is you could do a podcast about service businesses, or, or you could, you could be like, why did you know, maybe even further out, like, why did I have the idea for this business as opposed to another business and, and write about that and give a Ted talk on that, or, you know, how do you come up with good ideas? And so it becomes more and more macro. So you could, you could either go horizontally on the idea axis, like, okay, what are other things relate relating to selling on Amazon? Or you could go vertically. Like, oh, why sell it all? Or why set up an agency? Or, you know, you go more and more abstract. And that's how you generate spokes to that, the wheel that is you.
1: Yeah. And speaking of the interviews that get put in that book, think of the PR that the guests then got in Tools of Titans. When you're on that book that's now being promoted alongside all those other titans, that's helping your brand too. So there's also that benefit to the people that are featured.
0: Absolutely. I am a Titan. I can say it because I'm in the book, Tools of the Titans.
1: That should be on your LinkedIn page. (laughs) Yeah.
0: 2016, Titan.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then I love the behind the scenes aspect because there's so much more to a podcast interview than just the 45 minutes that you hear. Sometimes it may have taken years to get that guest to say yes or to finally nail down a time where you guys were in the same room and recorded a show, but we would never know that. But that's... Like, as a big fan of yeah. your show, that's the sort of stuff that would fascinate me is, like, how you met this person and how be- you became friends with them.
0: Well, also, and it's a great point, too. Like, I, I picked up Tools of the Titans maybe two or three weeks ago and just randomly read some some chapters. Now, I would—if I'm looking at Tim Ferriss's podcast, even if I look at the last 100 episodes, I would not have seen— the people who i read about in tools of titans the because these were more than 100 episodes ago for him so i never would have listened to those podcasts It's an, and and the information is still fresh i mean this is you know if someone's a good interviewer they're getting timeless information they're not saying well what did you think about what happened in afghanistan yesterday they're saying how did you become who you are like how did you survive those failures how did you you know get out of drug addiction or whatever and Uh, you know, it's just a way for me even, and I know I've listened to those podcasts originally. I know he's interviewed them, but I probably would never listen to that podcast again, but I probably don't remember those podcasts very well because they were five years ago.
1: Well, and think about the fact that Tim curated those parts of the podcast. He's listened, he's interviewed all these people and these were the moments that were most important to him. So it's like a masterclass on his show.
0: Right here were the people and here were the moments in that interview because he doesn't have the whole transcripts and then here's his commentary so it's insanely valuable to either to everybody because how else are you going to get like for brian keating there's no other book out there that's a, a really smart analysis of a group of nobel prize winners in physics and how they think the way they do that think like a nobel prize winner is the only book in the world like that And again, you might be interested in that, but you don't listen to podcasts. So this is your exposure to it. Or maybe five years from now, I don't want to re-listen to all of Brian's podcast, but I want to read that book again. So that's the way to do it. Like if I knew who he was. And like I said, if if you start listening to Brian five years from now, you'll never listen to these older episodes. People just don't do that. Like our long tail of podcasts is very, it's not very big. There's a long tail, but it doesn't get as many views as the current episodes. So Uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why somebody should buy a book like that, because how else am I going to learn to think like a Nobel Prize winner? I've got an almost Nobel Prize winner who interviewed all of them and then giving his insights into all that. And he has a good relationship. So they're being vulnerable with him and so on. And B, uh, it's good ways to get his insights. And and it's a good way to explore his podcast without if I don't listen to podcasts.
1: Yeah. And after reading that book, there were some of those Uh, folks that he interviewed in the book that I wanted to go back and listen to the podcast. I thought it would be over my head and I wouldn't be able to understand it. But then after reading the book, I go, wow, he's speaking things that I could benefit from about creativity or public speaking or uh, handling criticism and having confidence and all these other things that are so applicable to me.
0: And by the way, think about it from the podcaster's perspective also. If he writes this book and then he asks me to be on his podcast, a little bit in the back of my mind, uh, if I'm trying to decide which podcast to go on, You know XYZs or brian keating's well in the back of my mind i'm thinking a little bit oh he might write a book about this maybe i'll be in that too so you know it's it's great for the podcaster not to mention you know there's money to be made to tell you the truth like if someone is the wheel and they're thinking of their spokes they don't have to do every detail of the spoke like the first three self-published books i did uh, the content was okay but i didn't really professionally do it So they had like really weak covers. I can always tell if someone's just started self-publishing, their cover is very weak. The editing's not that great. The quality of the paper is not that great. Like people just don't know some of the basic nuances of self-publishing. And if we're doing the publishing for them, as opposed to them self-publishing, that allows them to focus on their interviews, getting their guests, improving their vision, doing their analysis of each interview. And we put the whole package together. So we could discuss this more, but maybe we should have Brian on on the podcast and really announce this. But for any podcasters out there who are interested in seeing some of their episodes or or all of their episodes or a category of their episodes turn into a book and we can help you do that analysis, like what works and what doesn't and what are best practices, we will walk you through the whole process. Happy to bring you on this podcast and walk through the process with you on the podcast so so all podcasters could see other ways to monetize their podcast by writing, but we'll do the whole process for you. And I'm a big believer in this. The other thing is people always say, well, why should you do a podcast? Well, obviously you do it if you love the topic, but you want to make money doing the podcast, but maybe your podcast doesn't make money, but you don't want to stop doing it. Looking at more spokes, like making a book, doing a Ted talk, whatever might lead you at some point to what does make a lot of money. Like, oh, I have an idea for a business because I did this or somebody noticed me. So I'm getting to speak at a Ted talk. And then I have 20 million views on my Ted talk. And now people want me to speak at all their companies for 50,000, a talk or do consulting for them because they saw me through this book or whatever. So it's just another way. If your podcast is not popular, but you love doing it. It's just another way to get out there. So you can find something that's more lucrative.
1: Yeah. And I love the fact that you're featuring these other people. Because it's, I just found that just taking care of your friends and and supporting your friends and lifting them up and sharing their best moments, it always comes back and benefits you in the future. Just just taking care of them, so I I just see that being so useful to to highlight the best interviews like that. I agree. So look,
0: next time let's have Brian on. Let's launch this business. People are hearing this live as we're doing this. But uh, third, third, third. I know. Brian and I could generate a lot of interest and and customers for us. We've both had experience I've had a lot of experience self publishing. I've written a ton of articles about self publishing. I've written a book somewhere or other about self publishing or a course. You've had a lot of experience self publishing. You helped. Um, I don't know if you, they say the names, but I, you've helped quite a few podcasters already publish books. And so I think uh, we're we're the dream team to do this competition is welcome. There's, there's 2 million podcasts out there, so knock yourself out. And if anybody wants to reach out to James or me, uh, James Quandall, who's on the podcast and or me, get in touch with us somehow. There's a lot of ways to get in touch with us. And we'll feature you on here and give you best practices for free for how to turn your podcast into a book. You don't even have to use us. That'd be a good way for us to experiment and see if uh, there's demand for this sort of thing. So, or just let us know and if you want to use our services, and uh, this is, the company will be will be called PodPub. I think I don't know if we have the URL for that or anything. Maybe we should do that before we launch this podcast. And I've got to talk to Brian, make sure this is all kosher. And uh, uh, what do you think,
1: James? I think it sounds great, and we we really want to help you to get your message further, and this is a great way to do that.
0: Yeah. and then we can even start figuring out how to automate part of this process as well. Like, uh, you know, in terms of the transcripts, you know, it's how how do we could do everything from kind of the technical stuff, like, tr- you know, arrange the transcription services, help you pick the episodes, help you curate, help you format, you know, your thinking around this, and then all the way to the editing, and then cover design, uh, publishing, of course, marketing, uh, uh, and again, what the best
1: practices are each step of the way. And some of the services that we'll have to provide in order to create a book may be helpful for the show in general, as far as creating better show notes and the transcription services, Mm -hmm. like if that's not being done already, we're going to have to do that in order to catalog all the information. And then they should provide that on their website and, and provide more value to the listeners.
0: Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a really good idea. So anyway, James, we talked briefly about the Amazon seller stuff. We talked about we we launched the entire business on this episode officially. Uh, I know we didn't I didn't really get the full update from you, but this is already an hour. I think this is a good podcast. People should call us and contact us if they want to use these services or want to come on my podcast and be the first customer or the first two customers, and uh, or we can even convince Brian to do that as well. Good stuff. Let's meet again in a week or two.
1: All right, thank you.